When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. been nearly four months since we began our investigation into the murder of Jim Melgar. As promised, and as we always do, we've gone deep into the weeds, looking past the news reports, TV episodes, and even the jury verdict. Clever lawyering and Hollywood spin is not what solves murders. The real answers always lie in the details. We began this season with a story because that's all we had. A story told by third parties, relaying bits of their own knowledge mixed with what they've heard from those involved. And since then, we've been analyzing every minute detail of the crime scene. We do this because in order to solve this murder, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to see what the crime scene is telling us, as opposed to what a lawyer is telling us that a cop told them. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that the few details that Sandy gave during her two hours of interrogation are verifiable. She and Jim did go to dinner at Los Cucos that night. We have the receipt. The couple did stop at CVS for drink mixers, verified by video surveillance and another receipt. Jim had two or three rum and cokes. The autopsy showed that he had a tan liquid in his stomach and a .06 blood alcohol content. A single strawberry was eaten, confirmed by CSI Carpenter's testimony that he could clearly see that one strawberry had been eaten. We've also learned that some of the elements of the narrative that's been presented to us were inherently false. The red cord found in a guest bedroom, in fact, does not match the rope wrapped around Jim's body. The pillow sham found in the bathroom was in fact part of a set of three that were used as rugs in the bathroom. There was never any mystery there. And the assertion that there was no forced entry into the house is unverified and based on speculation. Carpenter not only didn't photograph or document the jams of the garage or back doors, 
but he also never checked to see if the door to the garage was locked or was even capable of being locked. Add to that the fact that he was never able to verify that he actually checked to see if Jim's truck door was locked, and we can no longer say that there were no signs of forced entry. We've learned that home invasions into occupied homes are not as uncommon as had been previously presented. In fact, news reports indicate no less than a dozen incidents with similar circumstances just in the North Houston area within a year of Jim's murder. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses do not, in fact, disfellowship members for getting divorced. We've also learned that we can no longer refer to the chef's knife found in the bathtub as the murder weapon. This theory has been called into question now after reviewing the anthropology consultation that revealed a consistent defect in the blade that caused the injuries to Jim's rib cage. The knife in the tub has no such defect. And lastly, the prosecutor's allegation that the Melgars were in marriage counseling has been denied by friends, family, church members, and church elders. It was presented by her on our show as third-party hearsay. However, this hearsay appears to be nothing more than a fabricated rumor. The evidence discovered up to this point has also left us with some serious questions to ponder. Carpenter testified that there was no indication that anyone had washed up on the scene, meaning no one washed off in the sinks or showers. He explained that the showers were dry and there was no blood in them. Same was true of the sinks. He even revealed during cross that there were hairs and debris on the sinks, indicating that they weren't wiped off. Sandy Melgar was inspected from head to toe. She had no blood on her body anywhere. Not on her nails, in her nail beds, not in her hair, nowhere. These two factors, when put together, beg the question, if Sandy killed Jim, then why doesn't she have a drop of blood on her? Next, we can compare Jim's body with Sandy's. Jim suffered over 50 injuries during the struggle that ultimately led to his death, over 20 of which were bruises to his body. Specifically, bruises to his hands, forearms, legs, and feet are noteworthy. The evidence seems to show that in many of these locations, Jim was bruised by body-to-body contact. And yet we have no corresponding injuries on Sandy. Sandy had ligature bruises on her forearms from her bindings, a bump on her head, and a bruise to the inside of her bicep, all consistent with being attacked from behind and tied up. Add to that a single small scratch on her thumb, and that's all she's got. In an attack like this, I would expect to find the offender with massive bruising all over their body and possible cuts on their hands from slipping on the knife, and most certainly bruising on their wrists from Jim fighting them off. None of this was present on Sandy. So we have to ask ourselves, how did Sandy pull off this brutal attack without sustaining any injuries to herself and end up without a drop of blood on her without washing herself up in the sinks or showers? Last week, we learned some new information that could be extremely important. Maria and Marissa told us that there were at least some dogs loose in the house when they arrived, but they couldn't be sure if all four were present. Then we learned from Carpenter that two of the dogs were locked up in the office when he began processing the crime scene. This point was sort of breezed over during Carpenter's testimony, but I think that it could go a long way toward tearing down the prosecution's case. Sandy told investigators that all four dogs were outside when the couple got into the tub. This was their normal routine. 
As a quick recap, the Melgar's back door had a small dog door at the bottom. The backyard was fenced, and Jim had created barricades at both entrances out of the breakfast nook area. The effect was such that the dogs would come in and out of the house as they pleased, but they were contained to the breakfast nook area inside, except for the instances when they would escape, as Sandy put it. At night, Jim would lock the dogs up in the office. On the night of the murder, Sandy says that Jim got out of the tub because the dogs were barking. His intention was to put them into the office as usual. So what does two dogs in the office actually tell us? Colleen Barnett's trial theory, the theory that convinced the jury to convict her, was that Sandy's entire story was made up. She stated that Sandy planned this murder far in advance and that she lured Jim into the chair in the bedroom, where she began her attack by slashing Jim's neck and chest with a knife. But the dogs tell us a different story. I presented a potential theory last week that Jim retrieved two of the dogs, one under each arm, locked them in the office, and was ambushed either on his way back to the back door or at the back door. But let's set that theory aside for a moment and talk about what the dogs tell us didn't happen. Two dogs in the office and two running free does not add up to a lure of sex play by Sandy. There's just no scenario that I can construct in my mind where Jim puts half of the dogs, one of the adults and one of the puppies, into the office and leaves the other two running free. I also can't fathom why Sandy would only lock up two of the dogs if she was trying to stage the scene. If the intention in doing so would be to put forth this exact thought, then I think she would have pushed the theory forward to her defense or to the investigators. She never mentions to anyone that only two dogs were locked up and Seacrest didn't pounce on the topic. And that leads me right back to my original theory. The only logical explanation for the two dogs in the office is that Jim was interrupted when he was returning to the back door to retrieve the other two. On the 27th of December, three days after Sandy completed her police interrogation, she went to the doctor to be evaluated at the urging of her daughter. The report from this visit is posted on her website. The doctor's report states that Sandy reported that she had been assaulted on the 23rd. She states that intruders broke into the home and she believes that she either fainted or suffered from a seizure. Sandy tells the doctor that she was found several hours later with her arms, note she says arms here and not wrist or hands, and her legs were tied up. She goes on to explain that Jim had been found stabbed to death in another closet. From the report, quote, Patient got very nervous and upset with crying spells and unable to continue talking to me. So after reassurement and calmed her down, I did continue with her physical examination. End quote. The doctor report states that Sandy had a lump on the right side of her head with a hematoma. And in parentheses, it says patient had been applying ice pack for a few days. He also notes bruises on both of the backs and sides of her upper arms and also noted his bruising under her right eye and a small superficial bruise on her lower back. Then he goes on to note, quote, modeled lesions compatible with Raynaud's phenomenon due to systemic lupus. He's talking about lesions on Sandy's hands here. These lesions are the discolored areas that some of you might have noted in the crime scene photos of Sandy's hands. They're not bruises. They're lesions caused by Raynaud's and lupus. The doctor diagnoses Sandy with Raynaud syndrome, severe anxiety reaction with panic disorder, and severe post-traumatic stress syndrome. All of this information has begun to put the pieces of this puzzle back together. We're starting to get a better idea of what actually happened. But at the end of the day, theories don't solve cases. 
or at least they shouldn't. I think we've done a pretty good job using the evidence to determine what didn't happen that night, but if we want to figure out what did happen, it's time now that we take a look to science. It's time to see what the forensics are telling us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Prosecutor Colleen Barnett chose not to call a DNA expert to the stand during the state's case presentation. And for good reason. Spoiler alert, there was zero DNA evidence on the crime scene that helped prove the state's theory that Sandy Melgar killed her husband. There wasn't even any evidence that supported any theories that she might have killed her husband. Nothing. None of Sandy's DNA on Jim, none of Jim's DNA on Sandy. Sandy's DNA was not found on the phone cord binding Jim, nor was it present on the red rope over his body. The crime scene is void of any of her blood, and there were none of her hairs found on or near Jim's corpse. So, as any trial strategist would suggest, the state avoids the issue altogether. Max Seacrest, on the other hand, he wanted to talk about it. As a part of the defense's case, Seacrest called forensic expert Matt Cortaro to the witness stand. For the usual reciting of Cortaro's resume, Seacrest starts laying some groundwork. Mac has him explain what touch DNA is and then throws some hypotheticals at him. He touches him and asks if that would leave his DNA behind. Mac Quartoro replies, Definitely possible, yes. Then Seacrest asks Matt if he would expect to find a person's DNA in a tub after they'd taken a bath. Quartoro responds, It's possible, but it's possible that you wouldn't as well. Then we get down to brass tacks. Portaro confirms that he has reviewed the DNA results from the report generated by the Texas Department of Public Safety and the one created by the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences. Basically, he's explaining the results from the DNA test performed by the state, the results that they didn't want to talk about. And we start with the tape lifts. Tape lifts are exactly what they sound like. When trace technicians see any kind of hair or debris that they're interested in, they use a type of tape to pull it off of the item for examination. The first tape lift was taken off of Jim's right hand, and it was animal hair. Next, Quartaro explains the result from the tape lifts taken from the front of Jim's legs. That's the side that was up and exposed, since he was found in a semi-seated position. Found on Jim's legs were dirt, debris, animal hair, body hairs, some possible head hair fragments, hair fragments of an unknown origin, and some possible pubic hairs. The testimony never really gets into the source of the human hairs, 
But for now, I want to circle back to the two dogs that were left running free that night. It's been questioned that if the dogs were free in the house, why is there no evidence that they went to Jim's body? Well, there is. He has animal hairs, not just on the bottoms of his feet, but on his hands and the top of his legs as well. And you might be wondering, why was there no visible blood found on the dogs? Well, that's because dogs clean themselves. They don't typically like being dirty. As we continue, we find more dirt, debris, and animal hairs on Jim's front right side torso, his right shoulder, and his right arm. In the same locations, we find body hairs and hair fragments of unknown origin. The same is true on the back of Jim's body. Then we move on to the big one the DNA analysis of the fingernail scrapings from both Jim and Sandy. Jim's fingernails on both hands were scraped for testing, and Sandy voluntarily allowed investigators to take scrapings from her nails as well. Here's Quartaro's explanation of the DNA results from the transcript. Quote, Basically, in a nutshell, the DNA profile from Ms. Melgar's fingernail scrapings matched Ms. Melgar. The DNA profiles from the fingernail scrapings of Mr. Melgar matched Mr. Melgar. So it was just their own DNA underneath their own fingernails, which is not surprising. So, no help to either side. None of Jim's DNA was found under Sandy's nails, and none of hers was found under his nails. Now, you would think that would be a good indicator that Sandy didn't commit the murder, and it is, but unfortunately for her, no one else's DNA was found under Jim's nails either, proving that someone could, and in fact did, murder him without leaving their skin under Jim's nails, rendering the point moot. Next, Seacrest moves on to the backpack from the garage, the one that was initially missed by Carpenter, but was later discovered by the family a few days after the murder. We start with the analysis of the backpack itself. There was no blood found on it. The pack was swabbed for DNA in four locations. Swab number one contained no DNA, Number two was reporters being insufficient, meaning there wasn't enough DNA to develop a full profile. But the third swab? Yahtzee. Portaro testified that it contained a mixture of DNA from at least three individuals. At least one of the individuals was male. Unfortunately, the sample wasn't robust enough, his word, to actually compare it to anyone. Next, we move on to the contents of the backpack. Max starts with the Xbox game case that was found inside. Presumptive testing for blood on the Gears of War case, that's the name of the game, was positive. So we know that there was in fact blood on the game case that was found in the backpack, in the garage. DNA testing conducted on the game case rendered a partial profile that may have come from two or more individuals. But unfortunately, again, the quantity of DNA was not sufficient to obtain a profile suitable for comparison. But the instruction booklet inside the case? Now that's a different story. The testing on the Gears of War booklet yielded usable results. There was a partial DNA profile discovered on the booklet. This time, we know that there were at least two contributors and at least one of them was male. The quantities on DNA found on the booklet were sufficient enough for exclusion which means they can't necessarily tell you whose DNA was found on the booklet, but they can tell you whose wasn't. Excluded as possible contributors of the DNA from the booklet inside the game case are Jim Melgar, Sandy Melgar, Herman Maria Gerson, Monica, Marissa. 
And since Liz, who the game actually belonged to, is in fact female, she can also be excluded. So what does that mean? It means an unidentified male left his DNA on the game booklet that was located inside of the game case that tested positive for blood that was found inside of the backpack in the garage. This game was most definitely removed from its home inside the drawer in Liz's room, and someone opened it, someone other than Liz, or any other family member. Next up is a pearl earring that was found in the backpack. From the earring, we get a solid profile, a single source, and this time it's female. And this profile is of sufficient quantity for comparison. It's Sandy's jewelry, but it wasn't Sandy's DNA found on it. In fact, the source wasn't any of the family that was on the crime scene that day. The lab labeled the DNA found on the jewelry in the backpack as belonging to, quote, unknown female number one. And this isn't the last time we hear from unknown female number one. Next, Mac moves on to a swab taken by Maurice Carpenter on the night he was processing the crime scene. While the backpack wasn't found until days later by the family, the jewelry box in the master bathroom, the one that was rummaged through, was swabbed by Carpenter on the very night that Jim's body was found. The swab contained a mixture of DNA profiles. All of the Melgars on the crime scene that night were excluded as contributors, but we do have enough of a profile for a match. It appears that unknown female number one left her DNA not only on the earring in the backpack in the garage, but also on the jewelry box in the master bathroom. The same female touched both items and left her DNA behind. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After the big reveal of the unknown male DNA on the Game of War case in the garage and the unknown female DNA on the earrings from the backpack and the jewelry box, Max starts to pick up the pace. He presents Quartara with results from several pieces of Sandy's bindings. Remember, Herman and Maria had to make several cuts to the bindings in order to free her, so there are a lot of pieces. The pieces discussed here all yielded the same results. Nothing useful. Partial profiles of insufficient quantity or quality to be compared. There were some hairs found, but they weren't analyzed. Then he moves on to the rubber glove found in the trash can in the master bathroom. This glove was reportedly used by Sandy to dye her hair. Different item, same story. Nothing useful was found. On to the white blouse found in the tub. And more of the same. No usable DNA was found on the shirt. There were possible hairs observed, and when asked whether there was any blood found on the shirt, Quartara responded, quote, there was nothing reported. Just as an observation, I have photos of the white blouse from the evidence room. It's a long, slender shirt, like the kind that goes all the way down to a woman's knees. It's lacy and very low-cut. In the photos, the shirt is covered in yellowish blotched stains. It looks to me like a bloody shirt that was soaked in water. 
Most of us, at one point or another, have experienced trying to get blood out of clothes. You know how when you take the shirt out of the water and it looks like the stain is gone, but once it's dry, you can see that the material is discolored? Yeah, that's what it looks like. Next up is the tub knife. Two swabs were taken, one from the handle and one from the blade. Both tested positive for blood, and on the blade, there was a single DNA profile identified. It was Jim's. But on the handle, there were two profiles found, a major and a minor contributor. The major contributor was identified as Jim, but the minor contributor, insufficient quantity for comparison. They couldn't even tell if it was male or female. So it looks like most likely the killer did leave some DNA on the handle of the knife. Enough so that it was still present after a 15-hour soak, but not enough to have any idea whose it was. Next, Mac moves on to the South Sink. This is the sink that Sandy typically uses, the one with the jewelry box. No surprises there. DNA was found on the swabs. Sandy can't be ruled out as a contributor. Jamie and the rest of the family can be. Cortaro confirms that it is indeed no surprise that Sandy's DNA was found on her sink. He did this when Seacrest asked him what he would likely find on his own sink. Cortaro's response, likely find your DNA. And then we move to the north sink. No usable DNA was found. Just another partial profile with a possible mix of multiple contributors. But there wasn't enough there to even rule anyone out. Then onto the tub. Only two swabs were taken from the jacuzzi tub. And by swabs, I mean a Q-tip type object that's rubbed in an area. Out of the entire tub, just two small areas were tested for DNA. But the results were actually good for Barnett. One swab yielded a profile consistent with Sandy, and the other resulted in no DNA at all. Even though this, as explained by Cortaro, only means that Jim's DNA wasn't present in the two locations that were tested, it doesn't mean that he wasn't in the tub. And that point is further driven home by the fact that there was no DNA found on the second swab. I mean, we know that Sandy's DNA was on the other swab, and there was a bloody knife in the tub, and yet still nothing found on the second one. Still though, if I were Burnett, I would definitely present this to the jury as evidence that Jim was never in the tub. It's not what it actually means, but it's definitely not proof that he was in the tub. Then we move on to swabs taken from Sandy's hands. Her DNA found, obviously, but a second profile was obtained from both hands, but there wasn't enough there to do anything with it. Testing for blood on her hands was negative. Mac wraps up his direct examination by having Quartaro confirm that there were no locations on the crime scene where Sandy's DNA ever mixed with Jim's. He also confirms that Sandy's DNA was not found anywhere on or near Jim's body. Then Seacrest has him list out all the items swabbed in the house that contained alleles that could not have come from Jim, Sandy, or the rest of the family present on the night Jim's body was found. The list is kind of long, but honestly, I don't think that the weight of what Quartaro was saying was absorbed. The way this was presented, to me at least, was confusing. After we wrap up cross-examination, I'll circle back to the source document, the actual lab results. Nonetheless, this is the list of items containing foreign alleles as provided by Matt Quartaro to wrap up direct examination. Seacrest asks him specifically to list the items that contain alleles that were formed to Jim or Sandy's DNA. The unknown alleles were listed as follows. The backpack. At least one contributor was male, and there are four alleles present that cannot be contributed to Jim or Sandy. 
the Gears of War case inside the backpack. Unable to tell if DNA is male or female, but there were two alleles not consistent with the Melgars. Then there was the Gears of War booklet, male DNA, all Melgars are excluded. This next one is where I think Portaro missed the mark a bit. This is the multicolored scarf that was used to bind Sandy's legs. Cortaro states that of the four swabs from the scarf, all contained at least one allele that couldn't be attributed to Jim or Sandy. Now, there's more to this because he's only reading off one of the reports and there were multiple, but we'll get back to that. The closet doorknob. Three DNA types are present on the knob that did not come from Jim or Sandy. The guest bathroom doorknob. Two foreign alleles. The left nightstand. Also two foreign alleles. Swabs from an open dresser drawer, six alleles that did not come from Jim or Sandy. The office doorknob, four foreign alleles. And then we have unknown female number one's DNA on the jewelry box in the master bath. There was also another foreign allele on that jewelry box that wasn't discussed earlier. Seacrest scored some points in direct. I think that it was made very clear to the jury that there was an unidentified male's DNA on the Gears of War booklet. And that's huge, because the game reportedly came from the drawer inside Liz's bedroom. The case had blood on it, and it was found in the backpack in the garage, along with some jewelry and an Xbox that belonged in the living room. We also have the matching unknown female number one DNA found both on the earring in the backpack and on the rifled through jewelry box in the master bathroom. The rest of the items, on the other hand, didn't feel like they had quite the punch that they should have. There was a lot of foreign DNA on this crime scene but these items were just listed at the end of direct examination, preceded by a lengthy explanation as to what alleles are. But for now, let's move on to Barnett's cross-examination. Colleen jumps out of the gates with guns blazing. No hey how you doing, no pleasantries at all. She jumps right into the questioning. She begins by asking Quartaro if the defense can get items tested that the state chose not to if they want. All they have to do is get the judge's permission. I don't know that for sure, but I would assume so, is Quartaro's answer. Barnett then immediately moves to undoing the damage done during direct. Namely, the unknown female number one. Colleen has Quartaro confirmed that it was Jim's blood on the chair and stool found outside the closet. She does this by presenting him with the raw data chart showing the actual results of the DNA testing. This accomplishes two things. It sets the jury up for her final argument, where she presents her theory that Sandy initiated the attack on Jim in that chair. And more importantly, during this testimony, she's preparing to make a point about her unknown female. She first brings up the earrings from the backpack. She points out that while Jim and Sandy can both be excluded, in five of the 15 loci, there are elements that kind of half-match Jim and half-match Sandy. And then she brings up the jewelry box from the bathroom, the one that seems to have the same DNA on it from that unknown female, and points out that that profile has even more loci, which seem to be a combination of Jim and Sandy's profile. Again, both are excluded, but we see where Barnett is going with this when she has a slip of the tongue on page 216. She says, unknown family member number one, and then corrects herself to unknown female. Then on page 218, she asks the question, quote, does that appear to be the daughter of the two or child of the two? End quote. Quartaro's answer, quote, It could be. There's other data there as well, but it's not impossible, but I don't have her reference. 
No one ever asked Liz for DNA. The defense went to trial with the reported face value, unknown female. And I would imagine that the state didn't want to risk testing Liz. That would be a gamble. If the DNA was a match to Liz, then this element of the defense's case just disappears. Liz had been to the house a couple of months before. If she had worn those earrings during that trip, then there's no more unknown female DNA. Nothing to worry about. But if it turned out not to be Liz, then the prosecution would be up a certain creek with no paddle. That would mean absolutely confirming that an unknown female touched the jewelry box and the earring in the backpack. The better move was to leave it alone and just raise it as a possibility at trial, which is exactly what Barnett's doing. And I have to say it's some pretty clever lawyering here. Quartaro never testifies that it is Liz's DNA because he has no way of knowing that, but he does agree that it's definitely a possibility. And again, he does state that there's more data in these samples and then aside from unknown female number one's DNA, there's also another mixture of alleles. But Colleen doesn't prod into that. Score one for Barnett here. Next, she goes after the Gears of War booklet. There's not much that she can do with this one. The unknown male DNA certainly did not come from Liz, and the profile doesn't indicate that the mixture involved there could come from her either. Colleen takes a similar but different approach on this one. She points out that there is no way that we could know if the unknown male DNA could have come from Liz's husband. Quartaro makes clear that there's no possible way for him to know that. Colleen agrees and then circles back to her earlier point. The defense could have done more testing if they wanted to. And Quartaro agrees and says the prosecution could have done more testing as well. This goes back and forth a bit. Essentially, Barnett is saying... Sure, this male DNA doesn't belong to Jim, Sandy, or the rest of the family there that night, but maybe it's Liz's husband. I guess we'll never know because the defense didn't order further testing, ignoring the fact that the defense had no idea she would be making this argument. And she did have every opportunity to answer these questions before trial and chose not to. Barnett keeps hammering away. She moves onto the scarf from Sandy's ankles. Now, the jury may not have picked up on the issue here, but Colleen knew what the results said. DNA present on Sandy's ankle bindings consistent with three individuals. One is male. She asks why there was no comparison made, and Quartaro responded that there was a possibility of an allele dropout, which has to do with the quality and the quantity of the DNA. She follows up by asking if it's possible that the source could be the people that were trying to untie her. He responds that it's possible. But here's the rub. There are what appears to be at least three different reports being tossed around here. If you read the transcripts at the beginning of Direct, Seacrest presents them all to Quartaro. In the report that I have that I got from the DA's office, this is what it says regarding the multicolor scarf, Sandy's ankle bindings. Item 37, and that's the piece of scarf, swab A1. Quote, Consistent with mixtures of DNA from two or more individuals, Sandra Melgar, Gerson Campos, Marissa Melgar, Monica Melgar, Maria Melgar, Herman Melgar, and Jamie Melgar are excluded as contributors of the mixture. I'll be honest with you here. I'm no DNA expert, and I certainly can't explain all of the science behind it. But the report that I have seems pretty damn clear to me. Sandy's ankle binding had a mixture of DNA on it. It didn't come from Sandy, Jim, Herman, Maria, or anyone else that you might expect. 
I read that as Sandy's attacker left their DNA behind when they tied her up. But that is most certainly not what the jury heard. We have the same situation with the purple cloth that was binding Sandy's arms. A mixture of DNA with no comparison. But again, this is what the report I have reads. Item 35. That's a piece of the purple cloth. Swab A11. Quote, No conclusion can be reached as to whether the DNA results are from one or more than one individual. So there's at least one person's DNA on it. And then it goes on to say, Sandra Melgar, Gerson Campos, Marissa Melgar, Monica Melgar, Maria Melgar, Herman Melgar, and Jamie Melgar are, again, excluded as contributors to these results. That, again, is pretty definitive. DNA found on Sandy's arm bindings that do not belong to Jim, Sandy, Herman, Maria, or the rest of the family. All of them were excluded. But again, that's not what the jury heard. Instead, Colleen makes the point that there would be more DNA if someone was tied up for, say, 15 hours rather than just 10 minutes. The implication being that Sandy tied herself up just before the family arrived. Cortaro says that's possible. My opinion would be that someone tying the knot and struggling to bind themselves, sliding the cloth along their arms to do so, would leave a lot more DNA behind than, say, having someone tie you up while you're unconscious and then not moving for 15 hours. Next, Barnett goes after the tub, as expected. Jim's DNA was not on either of the two swabs, therefore Quartaro can't prove that he was in the tub. She mentions a knife handle. Insufficient amount of DNA, so we can't say that's not Sandy's profile. Then Barnett closes with the classic prosecution move. Mr. Cartaro, were you paid by the defense for your testimony? How much were you paid? I've always seen this as kind of an unfair advantage of the prosecution. The state has the luxury of having experts in their employ. They don't have to contract with experts in most cases. The defense, however, has no such luxury. Every expert they put on the stand has to be contracted. And every time, every prosecutor gets to let the jury know that the expert is being paid by the defense to give their opinions. Max steps back up to the podium for a short redirect where he has explain that an absence of Jim's DNA on the two swabs from the tub does not mean that he was never in the tub. Quartaro used the microphone in front of him as an example. He says that if he touches the microphone here on the tip, but the evidence tech swabs the handle, his DNA would not be present. But that doesn't mean he didn't touch the microphone. He also points out that you don't always leave DNA behind when you touch things. Basically, first you have to actually leave your DNA behind on an item that you touch, and then the tech has to swab that exact location. And I'll add again that on the second swab from the tub, Sandy's DNA isn't present either, but it is on the first swab. I have mixed feelings about Quartaro's testimony. As I've said before, you always get different stories in direct and cross-examinations. In this case, direct left us with an unknown female leaving her DNA on both the pearl earring in the backpack and on the jewelry box in the master bath. An unknown male left his DNA behind the video game in the backpack. But then in cross, we're left with questions. Could Liz be the unknown female? Could Anthony be the unknown male? Then we hear that we can't say it's not Sandy's DNA on the knife, and there's no proof that Jim was ever in the tub. At the end of the day, I think Barnett came out on top of this battle. Even though there was not a shred of evidence against Sandy in 
any of the DNA results. Her DNA and Jim's never mixed, and her DNA wasn't identified anywhere that it shouldn't have been. Colleen picked the direct examination to pieces and cross. Somehow, spinning evidence that on its face implicates at least an unknown male and an unknown female intruder into questions about whether Jim was ever actually in the tub and an implication that it might just be Sandy's DNA on the murder weapon. What bothers me most about this testimony is something that I've been saying for a few weeks now. The jury only gets to hear what's testified to, and direct and cross-examinations always end up blurring the lines between fact and assumption. So I prefer to do what I always do, look back to the source documents for the facts. And in this case, in the DNA report created by the Harris County Institute for Forensic Sciences, two things are made perfectly clear. On both of Sandy's bindings, purple cloth on her arm and the scarf on her ankles, someone left DNA behind. And that someone wasn't Sandy, Jim, Herman, or Maria. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.